Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, December 6th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. And Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And a reminder, we are getting ready to do another Ask Us Anything episode. So if you have a burning health policy question, you can email us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. And one more reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, with that, let us get to the health news of the week. So first up, last week's announcement by the Trump administration about what rules for the Affordable Care Act states can waive if they want to. First, Margo, will you explain what these waivers are that we're talking about? Yeah, these were uh, called innovation waivers, or they used to be called innovation waivers under the Obama administration. And they were created as part of the Affordable Care Act so that there was some flexibility for states if they wanted to come up with a slightly different system of how to provide health insurance to their population, that they could do it. But there were rules. They had to cover a similar number of people. They had to provide them with insurance that was as comprehensive as what the Affordable Care Act required. And it had to cost the federal government no more than it would have cost under Obamacare. And those are some pretty tough rules. And, and so no states actually stepped up to do this, right? So states have used this program to make very minor tweaks to their programs. And the most popular thing that they've done is they've used it to create what are called reinsurance programs, where some combination of federal and state money is used to help pay insurance companies that take on the very sickest patients. And what that does, it helps bring down premiums for everyone else, seems to increase enrollment and sort of lower costs overall. But in terms of kind of soup to nuts, a different way of doing things, no one has really done it. And I think this actually was somewhat by design. I think there was a desire to leave some room for states that wanted to do something like single payer, but not to leave room for states to do anything that was really too different than the Affordable Care Act framework. Uh, So the Trump administration has come along and they've said state flexibility is a big goal of ours. We want to provide states with other opportunities to innovate and not just all have to do the same system. And they have really loosened up the rules with a new piece of regulation or regulatory guidance. It's a letter. (laughs) Uh, Well, we can get back to that. But um, the Obama administration did guidance, too. Yeah, I was going to say. You couldn't do a rule. (laughs) that encompassed every possible variation of what 50 states could do. So they they did this guidance thing, which created what they called, you know, sort of a pathway for states and the the, the guardrails. So the Trump administration replaced the guidance letter that the Obama administration uh, put out and said, a lot more stuff is going to go. We're going to kind of uh, change the standards a little bit for what counts as just as comprehensive and what counts as just as many people get coverage. That happened a couple months ago. And what we saw last week is they actually put out some examples that could be sort of inspiration for states that said, here are some things that you could do that we would approve and that we suggest you try. And one of them is is sort of a version of this reinsurance thing that we've seen states do before. So that one is 
I think there's more flexibility than there was before, but it's not that exciting. And then there are three it's other ones. It's not that ones. new. <laughs> right. And it's right. also not that ideological. It's, it's right. conservative and more liberal states have both tried to do right. this reinsurance. But there was a really there, – there was much more controversial right. part of this. Yeah, but the, <laughs> other, the, easy part. the other three actually, I think – are worth thinking about in the context of the health care bill that the Republicans tried to pass through the Congress last year that made various changes to the way the individual market worked. And I think this mirrors a lot of the goals of that legislation. So it would allow, for example, states to completely change the subsidy scheme so that instead of giving people money to buy health insurance based on just their age and where they live, uh, it could be um, and I'm sorry, and the cost of insurance in their area, which is really important, that they could make it sort of more of like a flat fee. Uh, that would be a policy that would tend to disadvantage older people, poorer people, particularly older, poorer people. Uh, but it might make insurance more affordable for younger, healthier people. And so it could increase the total number of people buying some insurance, just changing the composition of who it is. Uh, they also have a proposal that would just allow states to basically take the federal money and give it to people in a special uh, health savings type account. And then they could use that money to either buy insurance or just to buy health services directly. So you could imagine if you were a healthy person, you don't spend a lot of on health care. It might be nice to just pay directly for a couple of doctor's visits a year and just save some money in that account. If you're a really sick person, you probably want more insurance, more financial protection. So maybe you would use that money to buy insurance, but it might not go far enough. And also that healthy person who just, you know, who has that money in the account, if something bad happens to that healthy person, they're not, they don't have insurance at that point, right? Right. So, and then, and then the third model is that they would really change, allow states to change the definition of what counts as insurance. So people would get subsidies similar to what they get now, but they might use them to buy, say, a short-term health plan that doesn't cover the same benefits that isn't available to people with pre-existing conditions. Uh, So we have no states that have raised their hand yet and proposed to do any of these things. And we don't know, uh, you know, as with the Medicaid waivers, which are kind of infinite and variable, there may be lots of different permutations of what states ask to do, if any, come forward. But this is definitely, I think, a strong signal from the administration to the states that they really are going to welcome their interest in dismantling the kind of structure of Obamacare's individual market reforms. And we have seen in the last year two states put forward proposals along these lines that got kind of smacked down because it was before this regulatory change. But both Idaho and Iowa uh, tried to do things that were disallowed before but that might be allowed under this new guidance. Rebecca, can, can they do this? I mean, well, it's very interesting. Um, I think that the um, Department of Health and Human Services has been very careful in systematically putting the steps together that need to be done. They first put out these rules that allow for different kinds of plans that don't comply with the health care law, which are the short-term plans and the association health plans. Then they put out the guidance, which changed a lot of the things that are required in the limits to these types of waivers. Um, some people think that the the guidance is a little bit legally dubious, but you remember that HHS Secretary Alex Azar used to be the general counsel for HHS. And if you look- In the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration. Yes, a long time ago, but you know, he, he is a lawyer's the lawyer. The regulatory process hasn't changed since then. No, no. And so one thing that they were very careful to do, they, they changed the guidelines on affordable and comprehensive coverage. 
but they did not so much change the idea that you have to cover as many people. And that's because in the statute itself, it says that you have to cover a comparable number of people, but it doesn't say that for having affordable coverage and having comprehensive coverage. So they were looking very carefully at those words. And um, the administration is very focused on the idea that if you have access to those plans, if you if there is some plan in the exchange that covers those and you have access to them, then it's okay to allow people to get federal taxpayer dollars for these other plans, which Democrats would call junk insurance, but which Repub- Republicans say offer an alternative um, that's affordable. And and so I think that allowing these different, these three controversial ideas that Margot just outlined for us, it, it's really interesting because I'm sure some of this will be legally challenged, but I think they have been very careful in the way that they've done it. Um, and I think it's also interesting that they really are pushing their philosophy with these. And you can do these things in conjunction with each other. For example, you could you could say we can use these federal subsidies to have a savings account and have a short-term plan, which, by the way, doesn't have to cover pre-existing conditions. And you can also change the subsidies so that people who are now not getting subsidies because they make too much money could benefit from the subsidies. So there's right. a lot here. Which is something the Democrats have actually been pushing yes, for. Yes, but they're pushing for more money, not the same pot. There's a difference right. between moving the subsidy ladder so that right now it's up to 400% of poverty, meaning that if you have, you're making 400% of poverty, you get a subsidy. It might be small. Which is about $100,000 for a family. Right, for a family it's almost exactly $100,000. Right. And if you're making 402% of poverty, you're not getting that subsidy. By the time you're at the top of that scale, you're not getting as large a subsidy as someone who's making less money, but you're still subsidized. And they're still, yeah, so they're so still what they call a There are some Democrats who talk about, you know, m- extending that ladder, extending that scale, you know, add subsidies up to 500 or whatever, you know, whatever the number they, they choose, but they would be talking about more money. This model is talking about taking, you can, ex- taking the same pot of money, ex- possibly extending that scale, that ladder, but with the same amount of money, which means if you're giving people who make $120,000 a subsidy, and maybe they need it, some insurance markets are really expensive, but you're ta- you may be taking away money from someone who's making $40,000 and needs the help even more. So it's a matter of are you increasing the numbers of people who are eligible with or without increasing the amount of cash to go with that, and who gets hurt? Still... As states consider this, they still have to comply with some limits, and one of those is that you can't add to the federal deficit. So right. it's still not going to be super easy for states to do this. Um, I looked; it all, they also have to have state statutory authority to do this. And I looked back; the latest thing I could find was from 2013, and they said that 19 states at that point had them. So you know, if it's at this point less than half of the states that are even able to do it. We don't know who's going to go for it and who won't. Right. And the, the, the historic origins of these, uh, they're called 1332 waivers or innovation waivers. The historic origins were there were a lot of compromises we all remember, you know, back in 2009, 2010 within the Demo- you know, among the Democrats to get the ACA passed. And um, some of the more progressive options, notably the public option, which, you know, the, the left, the more progressive wing of the party wanted was was axed. It wasn't politically viable. They couldn't get it through. The 1332 waivers were for states who wanted to do a public option, who wanted to try single payer. Vermont was looking at single payer. Oregon was thinking about public option. There were other states. Um, that was before Scott Walker. Wisconsin had some ideas. I mean, there were other states who were thinking about how could they 
go a little further than the ACA. That has not happened. No state has done that. Vermont um, came close, but couldn't. Not well. They not they, they really didn't come close because they <laughs> they didn't come close. They couldn't figure out the money. They tried. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they talked about trying. Um, California has not done it. New York has not done it. Um, the so so that it didn't rule out conservative states doing. Something no, and, and, and right. actually, Ron Wyden, who you know, who put this provision right, because in there, Oregon. talked about. I mean, he'd had a bipartisan bill before this, and he talked a lot about you know, if if red states want to go, if they think that they can do sort of all of this, and I think that's why the provisions are in there to say you have to cover you know, right? At it was least the guardrails, right? right. Those what they the, called the guardrails. You right. had to, you couldn't spend more money, and you had to cover the same number of people. Those were the basic guardrails. So this, but, but they what, said at the time that if conservative states right. wanted to try, they they it could. was it was inspired for the more progressive states. It was. Inspired inspired for the Oregons and the Vermonts, but it was certainly open to the Texases and the Floridas. However, where it is now, if you look at the language now, they are not explicitly, CMS is not explicitly stating, we will never, ever approve a progressive idea. They didn't come out that strong, but they do have language, and I have to thank Larry Levitt from Kaiser for going over this with me so I understood it right. They do have language saying private solutions are yeah, more, yes. are more are preferable to public solutions. So yes. they're not directly saying you know, no, California, no, you will we'll never let you do this. But they're they're clearly saying mm, maybe not so fast. Yeah. Assuming that California could ever get to single paper, which they failed last year. But, you know, we have a new governor, and et cetera. I also think, you know, Rebecca points out how there's sort of these steps along the way. But I also think you can see this as part of a sequence of sort of echoes of the legislative effort last year. So, you know, Republicans mm-hmm. really worked hard in thinking about what they wanted to do. What was the ideal health care system that they wanted that was different than Obamacare? What did Medicaid look like? What would these individual markets look like? What would HSAs look like? Uh, Lots of other, what would employer health insurance look like? And obviously, they didn't all agree on all of those things. Which is why, in some ways, you're giving them way too much credit. The bills didn't succeed. But we have seen in almost all of those areas the Trump administration following the failure of that legislation with regulatory changes that are similar. Not, you know, there's less authority to do things through regulation, obviously. That's why they wanted these bills. But we've seen, for example, a reform to the HSAs, the health savings accounts for people who want to save for their health care expenses. That was part of the bill. It didn't succeed. They're trying to do it through regulation. Association health plans, that was a really big chunk of the bill in the Senate, didn't pass. Now we see association health plans being achieved through regulation. State waivers were a really important and controversial part of the legislation. This was, I think, one of the big sticking points for advocates for pre-existing conditions who said, no, we don't want states to be able to waive all of these rules. Now we're seeing that uh, through this. And and some of these proposals, I think, also, again, do sort of echo the subsidy changes that were in the Republican bills that changed the Obamacare system for how people get financial assistance, buying insurance. Uh, this allows states to do something a little bit more like the Republican proposal. And I think a final thing uh, we should remember is that Medicaid work requirements were considered just, you know, not allowed by the Obama administration, uh, were seen as not consistent with the Medicaid statute. The bill would have explicitly allowed states to apply for waivers uh, that would allow them to impose work requirements. That didn't succeed as legislation, and now we've seen it come back through regulation. So bit by bit, it's not the whole bill, of course, and a lot of it is optional. So it means not every state is subject to these changes, which would have been the case under the legislation. But I think there are just 
you know, a lot of those ideas that they were kind of working through, you can see the administration now trying to push the system in that direction. Right. But there are a few differences. One, Margo mentioned Medicaid. This innovation waiver that we're talking about, this is about changing the exchange and creating alternatives to the exchange. This is about the private insurance market. It's about transforming the private insurance market if a state chooses. It does not do the extreme things that the Republicans talked about last year. It does not block grant Medicaid. It does not affect Medicaid. Um, only in the Directly. Sense, right. In the sense that the, the insurance world changes indirectly Medicaid changes. But this is really about the exchanges. The, the Most of Medicaid would not be affected. You know, the sort Sorry, of, yeah, no, by, I don't mean, right. I don't mean right. that. I'm just I just mean, I just mean that there, right. there is a separate right. Right. regulatory process right. that, allow, that is allowing states to right. pursue so the, work requirements. Now. Which is also in the courts. But the um, everything is in the courts. This is going to be in the courts, too. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's just we all just need Defunding to Defunding Planned Parenthood is another one, right? Yeah. was in the bill. Now they're trying to do it through Title X. Which they changes. haven't so far. But, right, we don't know what that's going to look like. That's a whole other subject. Right. I mean, this really creates the flexibility that they talked about last year in an optional level, unlike repeal, the states that still want to try to it, this is it is letting states that want to do reinsurance and want to prop up their exchanges would have new tools to do that or continued tools to do that. So it's it, it's again it's it's the two it, you know it's more of the two Americas stuff we always talk about. I mean, their states states are going to look really 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 different. All right, well that that is the perfect segue because I want to talk about states. Um, you know, obviously what the 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 theme here uh, and the Trump administration is to you know devolve as much as possible to the state. So uh, we now have th- these sort of amazing lame duck sessions going on in some states, particularly Wisconsin and Michigan, which uh, uh, not coincidentally are transitioning from Republican governors to Democratic governors. In the case of Wisconsin, I think all of the state, uh, the the, statewide officials, right, all the statewide officials um, are transitioning from statewide uh, elected offices are are, are transitioning from Republican to Democratic as a result of the elections. And so the the Republican legislatures in both of those states um, have decided that maybe they will they will use their their last a bit of time to uh, substantially change what it is that those statewide officials, particularly the governor, can do. And it, it, this goes way beyond health, but it affects health care, too. I mean, let's talk about Wisconsin. Well, we first. have to remember that this happened first in North Carolina That's a couple right. years a couple ago. That when the, the Democratic uh, governor came in and Democratic the Republican governor came in. Co- Cooper is his name, right? And mm-hmm. and um, the um, legislature remained uh, Republican. It's a state that has swung more conservative. It, it, it is a state that has swung more conservative that now has a Republican excuse me, a Democratic governor and a conservative Republican legislature, a Democratic governor, a conservative Republican legislature. And when that transition was happening, North Carolina really tried, the outgoing um, Republican administration tried to really tie the hands of the incoming Democratic administration. And did. And and did. And now we're seeing it big time in Wisconsin. Big, 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 big time. (laughs) We don't yet know how far or how successful. Michigan's a little further along in this process. But the the most relevant things for us would be, um, you know, if the intent is to not let the new governor of Wisconsin undo the Medicaid work requirements and not let the new attorney general drop out of the Texas lawsuit, the two lead plaintiff states are Texas and Wisconsin. That's the lawsuit we talk about here just about every week. We're waiting. I mean, we we're, still haven't had a decision. But we, we never went we're, we're in so this, we when say. we're in this room, we never know what's happening outside. <laughs> okay, I'm going to say December 17th. What's just your not, bet? Not 20, <laughs> just we'll not the, the 24th, right? Yeah. Yeah. That ruling is is maybe. Maybe imminent, probably imminent. Um, 
the that is expected based on the the what happened in oral arguments. We are we all think there will be upholding of a repeal of some portions of the consumer protections and pre existing conditions. We don't know the details. We don't know how far it will go. Wisconsin has been, along with Texas, the leader in that, and the Wisconsin state legislature. Excuse me. Yes, the Wisconsin state legislature, the outgoing state legislature, is telling the incoming attorney general, "You can't take get out of that. You can't change the state. You're gonna you have to stay in that lawsuit, even though you don't agree with it." I mean, basically, and even though they're campaigned on getting on, on dropping right. Wisconsin's role. It was a key uh, defining factor of his campaign, and he was elected. So the people of Wisconsin apparently thought that was a good idea. But the legislature, we should point out, is remaining Republican. It's right. not like next but not year, super majority, right? But no longer. Super but that's so that's part of I think the motivation is that this is obviously there's a partisan motivation and not wanting to let these newly elected Democratic executive branch officials, uh, you know undertake new policy. But it's also a little bit of a kind of balance of powers fight where the legislature, which is going to remain Republican, would like to reserve a lot more authority for itself and not allow the executive to make you to take unilateral action. Right. And they they actually had some provisions that were even stronger that they did drop. I mean, they basically had tried to say that the attorney general couldn't do anything. And I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. Couldn't do anything in court, I believe, <laughs> right. was sort of. But that's what they do. They yeah, go to court. Like, no, you know, he's really allowed right. to still play ping pong or whatever. But no, he they really, really wanted to restrict what he could do and that they would have their own parallel process. So they, they rolled some of that back. And I, we don't know what the Michigan. Again, Michigan is another situation where they had a more moderate governor. Snyder was a more moderate governor. He than expanded Scott Walker. Medicaid. Yes, but the um, outgoing Republican admin- legislature in Michigan, Michigan is, in fact, trying to do at least some of this, and they haven't done it as of last night, so we're not quite sure how that'll shake out. But yeah, lawsuits, lawsuits, lawsuits. Yeah. When I was covering Rebecca. the state legislature many years ago, there were always these midnight things that happened, and it's always kind of interesting to watch. In fact, right now, we're kind of watching to see whether there'll be some last-minute things in Congress that happen before the end of the year. But I think that, you know, it was kind of interesting in, in Wisconsin, bringing it back to Medicaid, the healthcare industry kind of flipped out when they when the legislation went forward to try to tie the governor's hands and force them to do work requirements. And you saw this letter where, you know, the Wisconsin Medical Society and the National America's Health Insurance Plans trade group came out and said, wait a minute, what are you doing? You really need to vet these things before you just slip them through. So it's always kind of fun to watch that. You know, I, somebody was uh, was tweeting when Congress came back in. It's like, why is the U.S. Congress even allowed to have lame duck sessions? You know, the voters have spoken. And, you know, my reaction was, well, Congress often has a lame duck session. And it's not so much to do this kind of thing where, you know, they're reacting as a result of the election. It's mostly to finish the work they didn't finish before they went back out to campaign. And it's funny because then you see what's going on in Wisconsin, which is obviously much more of a reaction to, oh, my goodness. the And they, they the legislators say. It. They yeah. say it. It's they not that it. any of us here are <laughs> imputing everything, to, anything to them. They are, if you read the coverage, there are quotes like, we don't want them to do anything liberal. Yeah. Mean, <laughs> are there other countries that don't have the kind of lame duck well, that, that's sort of that my question. Because it seems like I can imagine I'm at the, sure fa- France the founding of the country, better. like you need time for people to get to Washington or whatever. And there's always, of course, transitional things that have to happen. But it is rather long. But lame duck probably sounds good in French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or yeah, I have to think about that too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it's, it's interesting that my reaction was, well, of course, Congress is allowed to have a lame duck section session. Remember, they're in off; they they have two years from noon on January third to noon on January third, two years later. So it's just that right. But they're not trying; they're trying to finish 
they're trying to get the stuff through that they couldn't get through for either time elements or sometimes politics. I right, mean, they, they're I mean, freed things, from things like right. the farm bill or things that they've been working on all year and that they want to finish. Right, but they also they are not. But they also maybe didn't pass some of those things before the election because they didn't want to have to defend but, their votes. Yeah, that too. <laughs> right, but I mean, it's a, but they're not they're not passing laws in Congress that are saying that you know that that the Demo- the incoming Democratic House can't do their job. I mean, it's it's not the same thing. Yeah, there's there's politics. I mean, these are these up. are structural changes to the way that these state government work, as opposed to, you know, finishing the work that you didn't get, or done. just you know laws that affect the public. <laughs> All right. Well, finally this week, I want to talk about out-of-pocket costs. We have three sort of related stories about continuing dysfunction in the healthcare system because even with insurance, people increasingly can't afford care uh, that they really need. Margot, you wrote one of these stories. Tell us what you found. So uh, this story uh, came out of a collaboration with the Commonwealth Fund, which is a health research group, and the Harvard School of Public Health, which academic research group. And what they were really interested in was we haven't in a very long time done a really detailed survey of people who are really sick. And they had this theory that this is a population, people who are in the hospital more than two times in the last year, multiple doctor's appointments, multiple prescriptions, often multiple diagnoses, uh, you know, high levels of disability, that these people are in some ways kind of like a canary in the coal mine. They use the healthcare system so much more. They really need it to work for them. And that if we could examine how things work for them, we might kind of see some of the fault lines and some of the failures more acutely. And so this was a large survey. Just under 1,500 people who were very sick answered our survey. And what we found is, first of all, they had a lot of problems with their care. But I think most profoundly what we found is that these people were almost all insured, and yet they faced enormous financial consequences of their illness. And I I sort of put these into two categories. One had to do with their health insurance being inadequate. So at relatively high levels, these people faced, you know, deductibles and other forms of cost sharing that made their health insurance not very comprehensive. They encountered things that turned out not to be covered, either because their insurance company denied something that a physician wanted or because something was out of their insurance network. But then there was this whole other set of financial consequences that we don't talk about very much in the health policy community, but that I think are really important. And it seems so obvious when you think about it. But when people get sick, they can't work. And, you know, if you're really sick, if you're hospitalized and you have a job, you only have a couple of sick days, or you develop a disabling illness and you can't do the same job you used to do or do it for as many hours, uh, that creates additional financial burdens beyond the medical bills that you may face. And people sometimes have other kinds of expenses, too. You know, you're in a wheelchair now and you need a ramp for your house. You need grab bars in order to use your shower and and other things like that. Um, And then we also saw in the survey a lot of sort of psychic, but also financial burden on caregivers. So when someone gets really sick, what happens to their spouse or their kid or whoever it is that is helping them? Those people also often lost work and lost income because they were having to make more time to take care of a loved one. So anyway, we know from surveys of the general public that healthcare bills are an enormous source of financial stress, and we know that deductibles are going up all the time. So it's not a huge surprise that even insured people face these financial stresses. But I do think looking at the people who are the most acutely ill really brings it into a kind of a sharp focus that I found helpful. So I want to bring two other stories from this week into this, and we will post links to all of these stories on the, the podcast webpage. Um, one of them was a story on CBS, and it's about a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association or one of the 
journals uh, from the American Medical Association that found one in four patients with diabetes reported, quote, cost-related insulin underuse uh, because they couldn't afford their medicine. And, you know, we've seen some tragic stories in the last few months. Um, there was one one in, I think it was in Minnesota, a kid went off his mother's uh, health plan and was working full-time but couldn't afford his insulin, and he ended up dying, and they found an empty insulin pen uh, in his apartment. Um, the other story there's is... There's been a few of those. Yeah, and there have been several of those. The other story was by my uh, Kaiser Health News colleague, Jonella Alicia, that looked at how transplant programs do what are called wallet biopsies before they'll put people on organ transplant wait lists to make sure they can afford their share of anti-rejection drugs and other care that they'll need after they get their transplant so that if you're giving them a scarce organ, you want to make sure that organ is going to remain viable. Um, is it fair to say that unaffordability of health care, even for people with insurance, is reaching crisis proportions? I, I feel like we're sort of nearing a tipping point again. Well, I think we've been at a tipping point for years. I mean, if you're the sick person, you tipped. So, you know, it, it becomes part of the national conversation, and then it recedes, and it comes back, and it recedes. Um, but I feel like in 2008, it was more about people without insurance, and I feel like 10 years yes. later, it's about people with insurance who still can't afford what they I need. I think it has been, but I think that it, it has been for a few years, and I think it's, it is reaching... Um, but it's also because last year we were fighting about pre-existing conditions. This year we're back to talking. We're, we're beginning to talk about costs. I mean, the surprise bill, which is only a small part of this, has been something that's caught a lot of attention, and people talk about it because people it just going seems outside their insurance networks and getting unwillingly, right. right? Like you don't, you're unconscious, and you or you went to a hospital that's in network, and you get the doctor that's out of network instead of the pathologist, the radiologist, the the anesthesiologist, all that, the assistant surgeon that you didn't know existed, all those things. So I think this conversation, um, I mean. Obamacare was sold in some ways as bending the cost curve. Remember that, right? It wasn't just sold on but a moral also, grounds. Also it was sold, sold on as economic. providing new financial protection for people, right, who are right. insured. I mean, there are caps on there the out-of-pocket limits. I mean, I think in in most cases things are better, but it's just that the caps see, are the caps are way higher right. than I think most people. Right. Anticipated. I mean, a lot of people and just don't have a lot of, of money in the bank. Before there was no cap, right? There was like, you would just you just had a catastrophic chasm of costs. So there's a cap. But if you can't afford the cash until you get to that cap, it doesn't mean much. I mean, if you can't afford your insulin because you have this $10,000 cap, or you can't afford your rejection drugs because they cost thirty or $40,000 a year, and you're going to be responsible for X percentage of that, and you don't have the money, particularly, as Margot just said, if you're not working because you're recovering from your transplant or whatever, it's it's not sustainable because people, a lot of people in this country have only a couple hundred dollars of financial cushion. Savings, yeah. So can I, can I and, just say one slightly optimistic thing, please, <laughs> which is even though we know people with health insurance face these enormous financial obstacles often, um, there's just a mounting body of evidence that health insurance really does make a difference. So it might not be enough, but it is so much better than nothing. There was just a study out last week that was published by the National Bureau of Economic Research as a working paper that found people in Medicaid expansion states were like 25 percent less likely to miss a mortgage or rent payment. We have evidence that people who have, were in Medicaid expansion states were less likely to have bills in collection They're, and uh, less likely to declare bankruptcy, I believe. There's a lot of evidence from the kind of personal finance side of things where we can see that 
health insurance and particularly Medicaid, which does have fewer of these out-of-pocket burdens. I was just going to say that. <laughs> can really be an important financial stabilizer. And we saw that, you know, even in the Oregon health insurance experiment. So that's a experiment that was done prior to the Affordable Care Act, gave people Medicaid. And you could see just very short period of time, within a year or two, they had substantially less financial stress in their household. So I think those thoughts are not mutually exclusive. I think that there are more protections than there were than there were at one point, but I think and a lot that of people, preventive care, a lot of things that people are getting free now that they're not even thinking about that they're, yes. they're getting to take for granted. They're also like birth control benefits, right? But or, I think as we see the child, growth, child care. But I think as we see the growth of high deductible plans and other things, people are feeling the crunch. I mean, this is a real concern among the public, and I think that you know. Congress is not likely to take a lot of action on this. They might take some action on surprise bills. But I think this is going to end up being a bigger and bigger issue, particularly as the 2020 elections. Because we have not, I mean, there are consumer protections or patient protections. They're actually patients, not consumers. People who get sick or people who are trying to stay well or people who have kids who need well baby visits or whatever, there are all sorts of new protections of preventive care and, and lots of things that people are getting. And they do have these catastrophic caps that they did not have before. But if you're falling in, the, the people who fall in the cracks fall hard. And that that's why we do have situations like 25-year-olds dying because they can't afford their insulin in the United States of America in 2018. There was a protest where the mothers came to the drug, one of the drug companies, and it's not just one company. There are several companies that make insulin, and the prices are high with their child's, their children's ashes. And that is a reality. It's complicated. Insurance is not the it, better insurance isn't the only answer. Part of it is addressing the costs. Addressing the costs is really hard. And nobody has, you know, wow, nobody has fixed that. So insurance is part of it. The new protections are part of it. The underlying costs are an unsolved problem. The trajectory, even if it's better than it used to be, it's we're still spending a lot of, we're spending roughly, you know, 20 cents, 18 cents in the dollar, whatever. We're spending roughly one fifth of our economy as healthcare. That's a lot. That's a real lot. And it's more than any other industrialized country by a lot. Twice as much, right? Margo, you want one last word? No, we're good. Okay. (laughs) We are moving on now to our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I chose um, Why Hospitals Should Let You Sleep by Austin Frack. And all I have to say is amen, because (laughs) if you've ever been in the hospital, they come in every two hours, they wake you up, you feel like it's not conducive to healing. And guess what? He went through the research and proved that there are all these um, anecdotes and and studies showing that you need to be able to rest in order to recover. So I recommend it. <laughs> it's I, I thought about this story in the context of one of my favorite healthcare cliches that Julie and I often joke about, which is the idea of patient-centered care. Everyone says right. that they're providing patient-centered care. I hate that but, phrase. <laughs> but there is no way that the care is patient-centered when they are waking you up every two hours because it suits their workflow mm-hmm. preferences, as opposed to thinking about you and what is going to make you heal the best. And I think it is a sign of just how hard it will be to get to something that is legitimately patient-centered. My favorite comment on Twitter to this story uh, was someone who said, when I was in the hospital recently, they woke me up to give me a sleeping pill. (laughs) (laughs) Joanne. Of course. (laughs) Uh, There's a piece in The Atlantic by Ed Young called The CRISPR Baby Scandal Gets Worse by the Day. And it outlines 15 reasons that we should be really, really, really upset about this experiment, you know, 
do, scientifically. Do we, do we know that this is that these are really uh, there were CRISPR twins, right? Well, we don't know a lot, but yeah. like a there were there are other ways of protecting people against HIV without changing the human genome. Um, Maybe the, you should say what CRISPR is. It's, yeah. gen, it's gene editing. It's a way, but unlike gene therapy, where you go in and you fix a patient in, in CRISPR, in gene editing, you're changing, it's going to be passed on to fu- forever, future generations, and you're actually changing the DNA of the human race. Right. Well, and it's being used in, I mean, it's being used in plants now, and I think they're, they're, it, they're testing it in mosquitoes, but this is right. I mean, this no, is no, this, this is, is not prof- ethical in the United this is, States. This is a profoundly yeah. new thing that nobody on earth thinks we're ready for, except for the Chinese guy who did it. So this was an uh, the, the announcement that these two. I mean, how do you do informed consent on a baby that's not born yet? There's there's just you know whether this was bioethically whether this was biologically necessary. There are other ways of dealing with the the risk these babies felt had an HIV positive father. There are other things you can do without changing the germ. Line DNA. There's um, it, it, there are questions about it. There are just a million questions, and nobody thinks this is an ethically cool thing to be doing, or that we were ready because there were no animal studies first. They just did this on two little human beings who weren't born yet, and now have been. Margo. Uh, I wanted to highlight a story in the Washington Post from Amy Goldstein called An Experiment Requiring Work for Food Stamps is a Trump Administration Model. So this is not about a health care program per se, but this is about Wisconsin's work requirement for its food assistance program. Um, and the Trump administration has really advocated for making these kinds of tough work requirements uniform across all the states for food assistance. But of course, they also really do echo the kind of work requirements that are being placed in Medicaid programs in various states, including a couple that were just approved last week. Um, and what I think Amy does a really nice job of in this story is just going deep on a couple of people who are subject to these requirements, who in one case are trying awfully hard to comply. And it just shows the sort of complexity and the hassle and challenge of it. You know, this is a person uh, who she mainly focuses on who's just applying for so many jobs, doing the um, things that the state agency wants her to do in order to connect with them and really just facing a lot of challenges and also facing like some mistakes in her record. You know, the the whatever job they think she had or how many hours she had is often wrong. And I just think kind of going really specific like that is helpful to me because I think that we all tend to talk about these work requirements on a macro level. You know, so many people in Arkansas lost their coverage. So many people uh, got a job. Uh, But just reminding me that this is happening person by person, that there's a lot of complexity, that there's a lot of confusion, and that it's very hard to do this well. Even if you believe in the goals and think that it is a good program, making it work at the level of each individual person, I think, is quite a challenge. That it's a good companion to the the Arkansas piece we had from a couple of weeks ago that also followed a lot of sort of real people and their difficulties. You know, it, it's not so much that they weren't working. They had difficulties documenting their yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. All right. So my story this week is by Maggie Fox at NBC News. It is called FDA Approves Drugs for Dogs Scared by Noise. And this is not a joke. Dogs who are seriously reactive to mostly loud noises can end up hurting themselves and or their humans. It turns out that a human epilepsy drug called Pexion can help. It is not without some serious side effects, but I was mostly interested in that what usually goes the other way, which is that animal drugs are found to be useful in people, in this case was the reverse. This was a human drug that was found to be useful in animals, so we'll see how this goes. So that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments, particularly questions for our next Ask Us 
anything. We are at What the Health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kinnon. At Rebecca Adams, DC. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.